I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are the stories of the incredibly strange. Welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world. We're really happy to have you here with us again for the conclusion to our story about the real story behind The Exorcist. Now, as a little recap uh, for those of you who may be listening to this and have not heard the first episode in this little two-parter, we talked about a young man who we are calling Robbie and uh, his aunt, Uh, Miriam, and their relationship uh, that surrounded uh, spiritualism, and then what happened after his aunt died where he became demonically possessed, and from that point, um, things went from bad to worse, and all of this took place in 1949. So uh, when we last left off, uh, young Robbie had had a moment of relief during one of the exorcism uh, sessions and said that the spirit had left his body and that he was free from all of this. But this was not the end of the story. Right. And Robbie was 13 years old at the time. He and his family lived in Maryland. But uh, this exorcism was now taking place in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri, where uh, there were family relatives that they were staying with. Exactly. And... The mother uh, had taken him there first, and then the father showed up later when when things had progressively gotten worse. So, getting back into the story. After the return of the entity back into the body of Robbie, things began to escalate and become more frequent. One day while outside playing ball with his father and uncle, Robbie went into one of his fits. His eyes rolled to the back of his head and closed. He ran blindly across the lawn of two neighbors. The father and uncle chased after him. The neighbors assisted in grabbing the boy and bringing him back to the house. Father Bowden and the other priests were called. They immediately came over to the house and started the rites of exorcism. During the session, one of Robbie's younger cousins came into the room. When Robbie noticed the young child, he began to chant and sing. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. April 1st, 1949. The decision was made to baptize Robbie and convert him to Catholicism. Robbie and five family members left the home of the aunt and uncle to go to the college church for the baptism. During the car ride, Robbie said that he felt a strange sensation come over him. His feet were hot and cold at the same time. He went into another spell. He announced in the car, 
and a demonic voice. So you're going to baptize me? <laughs> and you think you'll drive me out with holy communion? <sighs> Robbie then lunged at his uncle who was driving. He snatched at the steering wheel, trying to force the car off the road. Robbie's uncle had to pull off to the curb. It took him and Robbie's father to subdue the boy and move him to the back seat. The aunt took over and drove the rest of the way to the rectory, where the father and the uncle and several priests dragged him from the car and into the building. It should also be mentioned that during the events in the car, the radio, which had been playing pleasant music, all of a sudden began to experience technical difficulties during the entire time Robbie was having his fit in the car. The strange phenomena did not stop until Robbie had been removed out of the car, at which point the signal to the radio returned to normal. Once inside of the church, the baptism ceremony began. However, Robbie was unable to complete his prayers, and every time a communion wafer was placed in his mouth, he spit it out in disgust. It took many hours before they were able to complete the baptism, at which point Robbie was finally able to accept the communion wafer and was able to complete all of his prayers. Father Bowden had asked Father O'Flowery to drive Robbie, his father, and uncle back to the house. But after only just a minute on the road, Robbie went back into another spell and once again attacked the driver of the car, trying to force the car off the road. April 11th, 1949. Robbie's mother had to be taken to a physician because of stress-related problems. The family agreed that Robbie would need to be moved out of the home, not just for their safety, but also for his. Robbie was then moved to the Alexian Brothers Catholic Hospital with his father. He would stay there till the end of his ordeal. At the hospital, Robbie made friends with Brother Emmett, who worked on the hospital grounds and would often give Robbie chores to fill his time and keep him occupied. Another brother working at the hospital, Brother Rector, bought a small colorful statue of St. Michael the Archangel, which he thought would be the perfect guardian to watch over Robbie. April 18, 1949. The exorcisms were more and more dangerous each and every day. During the final exorcism, Robbie cussed and used foul language at the priests. The priests would describe his strength as superhuman. It would take five or more men to hold him down as he swung at them, scratched at their faces, tried to strangle them and bite them. The priests had gotten to a point where they felt that the battle for Robbie's soul was hopeless. Then something happened that would change the course of the entire event. This is how it is described in the diary.
At 10.45 p.m., the most striking event of the evening occurred. Robbie was in a seizure, but he lay calm. Now, in clear, commanding tones and with dignity, a, a voice broke into the prayers. The following is an accurate quotation. Satan, Satan, I am Saint Michael, and I command you, Satan, and the other evil spirits, to leave the body in the name of Dominus, immediately, now, now. After coming to, the priest asked Robbie what had happened. They asked him to describe it in detail. Robbie described seeing the angel Michael fighting the devil and ten of his minions inside of his body. Michael was dressed in cloak that resembled scales. In his hand, he held a curvy sword that was set ablaze. He fought the devil and the minions back down into the cave that they came out of and locked the gate, keeping them out of his soul forever. He said that Michael turned to him and in clear words said, Domini. And then he was gone. At the end of the exorcism, the priest described Robbie as being so calm and peaceful. More calm and peaceful than he had been the entire four months of the exorcism. The boy was safe, and his soul had truly been saved. Now, at the end of all of this, like I said in the first episode, four copies of the diary were made, including the original, so that would be five total. And I'm sure one was kept by Father Bowden. And so they were never meant to be released to the public. Nobody was ever supposed to see them. It was just something that was supposed to be a document for the church to keep of something that had happened. Somehow it leaked out. This is how it got to the newspaper. This is also how Vladdy uh, uh, got a copy to research before he wrote the book, The Exorcist. That's how we're all aware of it now. Now, since then, Robbie had gone on to graduate from high school, ended up getting a job as a scientist, and lived a very happy life. He got married. He had three kids. Um, according to some sources, uh, it's believed that he named his first child after the angel Michael. He is now 83 years old, I believe that was. He's in his uh, mid-80s. Mid-80s, so he's up there. And has never spoken to anybody about this, has never spoken to his family about this, never told any of his friends about it. And when it became public... And again, we're not using his actual name. We're using a name that was often used when people would talk about him in books or in the documentaries that were done about this story. Uh, when they found out uh, who he really was and what had happened, um, people were shocked. They never knew that that was a part of his, his history, and they never knew that uh, anything like that could have ever happened to him. He said he was just a smart, uh, normal guy who uh, lived a happy life with his family. So that's the story. That's an abridged version 
of the story that inspired The Exorcist. Now, what we're going to talk about next is our thoughts and theories about how this could have happened and, and what some of the causes may have been that may not be paranormal but may actually be, well, medical. Right. Uh, that, that could be one explanation of some of the things that were going on. Uh, we're talking about 1949, so uh, a lot of what we know in the field of medicine and psychiatry today was really not known back then. So whatever it was, though, if it was medical, it, it certainly wasn't something permanent like a permanent brain injury because uh, prior to the four months of the exorcisms, Robbie was perfectly normal. And then after these four months, he returned to perfect normality. So exactly. no, no long-term uh, brain injuries uh, you know, uh, can be connected with this or, or something wrong with the brain, such as cancer or whatever. And it could have possibly been some kind of short-term medical thing, some kind of virus that infected the brain and caused... Uh, you know, all of his behaviors or whatever. We've certainly seen a lot of these behaviors in emotionally disturbed, severely emotionally disturbed children, uh, but we don't uh, attribute that to uh, demonic possession. I don't know. I've been tempted a few times to bring holy water into my school and right. sprinkle it on somebody and see if they uh, burst into flames. So, so, you know, that could be a possible explanation. However, it begs the question, Gary, of how did all of these other uh, poltergeist-type activities occurred that there were so many witnesses to. Things flying through the air, bed shaking, uh, uh, bookcases turning, uh, car uh, uh, chairs turning over. Um, it, it, that doesn't explain those kind of phenomena. Right. So here's where I'm going to come in with my little paranormal stuff. First of all, uh, one of the things I want to I say, just touching on what is possible in our environment, uh, mentioning 1949, a lot of houses had lead paint. There were a lot of chemicals that were used in houses. We still had asbestos. There's a lot of things in the house that can cause certain types of mental illness that uh, you know are related to household chemicals or products. But like you said, typically in those situations, those kind of things are permanent. They, they don't come and go within four months. So it could be something like a virus that might have caused that. Or uh, in some rare cases, there have been documentation of temporary insanity where there was some kind of um, mental break from stress uh, or some kind of event that may have occurred in the person's life that could have caused some kind of trauma that could have resulted in this temporary snap, it's possible. Well, when this uh, whole story first started, uh, they were hearing these little noises in the house, assumed that an animal had gotten trapped in the walls. So they called for a pest exterminator, and we don't know what kind of poisons or chemicals or chemicals might have been used by the exterminator because after that, after the uh, pest uh, uh, person was there, the um, that's when all of Robbie's behaviors started to become extreme. Right. So that's one explanation. So now let's go over to the paranormal. Uh, nobody is aware because we don't talk about this, but uh, I happen to have a uh, certificate uh, 
that I received from Flamel College in paranormal uh, investigation. Very proud of that. It was the best, uh, what was it, 40 bucks I spent? Yeah. Hey, listen, I have a card in my wallet, so I can be proud of that little card that I have. But um, speaking seriously, because I know there's a lot of people who are listening to this who probably do take it very serious about the paranormal or um, supernatural and things like that, which is perfectly fine. Um, I, there are a lot of things in this world that we can't explain. I mean, we have barely explored any part of our universe other than our little corner, and we've yet to discover everything at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we don't know all of our potential, and we don't know what happens after we're gone. So far be it from me to uh, say that nothing is possible. But let's, let's talk a little bit about the paranormal. Now, when we started researching the story, I automatically started thinking back to some of the cases that they had in the class involving poltergeist activity. Poltergeist activity, for most people who don't know, poltergeist aren't, it's a German word for um, mischievous ghost, I believe is the, what it means. So playful ghosts. But typically in situations with poltergeist, it's not necessarily something that has to do with a ghost. It's more of psychic phenomena. It usually occurs around people who are adolescents or emerging adults. So that would be anywhere from the ages of 12 uh, to 18. In some rare cases, uh, adults from the ages of 18 to 26. But these people are experiencing uh, stress in their life. They're experiencing trauma. They're unhappy with how things are going. And so whenever this person is around, bizarre things happen like things moving, lights, things with radios or other electrical type things. But it only surrounds this person. If the person's not there, nothing happens. And it doesn't last forever. It's usually a short period of time in, until the person's over whatever stress is occurring in their life, then it disappears. So when we're talking about somebody who's 13 years old, who has just lost a beloved aunt that they greatly care for, then you could start to suspect, if we're going to talk about the paranormal, a poltergeist-type event. And I might remind you that the entire family was into some of these spiritualist-type things. Right. They were into spiritualist-type things. But again, when we're talking about poltergeist, most often when people talk about poltergeist, we're talking about something that is more a psychic phenomenon and less ghosts. Now, if we're going to talk about the ghost end of it, uh, I remember very vividly when we were doing the course that one of the things they talk about is not messing around with Ouija boards because Ouija boards uh, open up the uh, window of possibility for things to come in that you don't want to come in. And so there's that. Because in this situation, uh, when we're talking about the demonic possession, we're not talking about ghosts or poltergeists. We're talking about an entity. An entity is anything that is not living or dead. It is uh, a presence or something that was never human to begin with such as the devil or demons. But angels can also be an entity too. But I'm guessing in uh, Robbie's case it was not an angel because I'm pretty sure an angel wouldn't do all of the horrible things that he did. So uh, we're looking at something that would have been more of an entity, 
uh, if we're talking about that end of it. And the possibility of messing around with Ouija boards and trying to contact something, inviting something into the home that doesn't belong there. Uh, a lot of times they'll refer to that as uh, an unwanted something, uh, entity or spirit that is pretending to be a familiar family member or loved one that the person is trying to contact. And by acknowledging that spirit and allowing it to come in, you've opened the door to something you don't want. And I would have to say that uh, while uh, Gary really enjoys the uh, paranormal aspect of this. Oh, I do. I am always the kind that looks for a more rational, scientific-based explanation for things. And so uh, one of the other things, uh, possibilities that some folks have brought up uh, throughout the years is that this was all just a hoax. And uh, they were, um, the boy was, you know, perpetrating a major hoax. But it was so elaborate, it was so uh, detailed, and it took such a, endured for such a long time that I find it hard to believe that this would fall into the category of a hoax. And that would mean that all of his parents and relatives had to be involved in the hoax, along with, um, you know, some of the uh, religious the religious folks that uh, we're talking about, unless uh, they came in uh, innocently and were fooled by these folks. But uh, I'm not saying that I subscribe to that theory. I'm saying that that is one of the theories out there that explains this uh, series of events. Then there's the medical, uh, then there's the, um, the uh, paranormal. And so we don't really have the answers, do we, Gary, as to what really caused all of this? I, I don't think we ever will have uh, the answers for it. But what I will say um, to all of what you just said, I also feel that there's typically a reasonable explanation for everything. It's nice to, or fun, it's fun to think about the possibility of ghosts and supernatural. It's fun. But if we're really talking about this seriously, it could be other things that could be explained. We don't know everything. We're not there. We can't, you know, say for certain. And eyewitness testimony sometimes is not always um, as accurate down the road years later when people are trying to remember certain key facts or if something happened and the person who's recording the notes wasn't there and they're trying to remember everything, especially when everything's already heightened as is, trying to remember specific details and, and giving them clearly and accurately to the person who's writing them down. Sometimes things can be over-exaggerated. So there's a possibility for that too. But I, I agree with you in the fact that, one, if this was done as a hoax, it would not have just been with the family and the priests. It would have been done so that it would have drawn more attention from the news media. It would have drawn more attention from local uh, groups or whatever, or national media. They wanted to keep this private for Everybody a reason. Everybody connected with the story wanted it private. Wanted it private. Nobody wanted it to ever see the light of day. It exactly. came out by accident. By accident. And here's the other thing, too. The number of witnesses that saw the happenings is more than just two or three people. We're talking about seven priests. We're talking about, uh, what was it? I, I said four uncles. Uh, I believe four there was aunts. about 40 folks in all when everything was said right. and done. So you have forty about 40 people who witnessed similar occurrences, experienced things 
that could not be explained. They were terrorized for four months. And as quickly as it came, it left. And it was done with. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I don't think we'll ever have all of the answers. And I know that uh, the gentleman who uh, we've been talking about this whole time, he's never really expressed any interest at all, has refused to do any kind of interview or any kind of personal story of his own. He has completely blocked that out of his life. That doesn't sound like to me somebody who wants to profit Awful from this. something. Right. This is right. somebody who wants it to go away. Yeah. And I think the best way to wrap up our final episode in this story, incredibly strange story, is to find out uh, what happened to all of the main characters in our story. Please. Well, we know William Peter Blatty did quite well because uh, he uh, had a very successful book followed up by a very successful movie, followed by a remake, followed by documentaries. So uh, uh, he did. He did all right. I think he made he a few coins. He did all right. Uh, and, uh, you know, when he first uh, came across this story, um, it was uh, called uh, something quite different. It was uh, uh, called uh, Mount Rainier, Mount Rainier um, Exorcism, because that's the a little place in Maryland where it uh, first where it started. started yeah. yeah. So Blatty did OK. Um, now. This is interesting, Gary, uh, and uh, I'm going to step out on a limb here, and I'm going to share with our, our audience Robbie's real first name. Okay. Robbie's first real name was not Robbie, as we've been referring to him, because Robbie uh, Mannheim is the alias that is most closely associated with him in all of the different uh, writings. But uh, the youngster who uh, in real life experienced this, his first name was Ronald, Ronald. And so William Peter Blatty uh, had a, a great sense of humor. Um, he wanted his movie not to identify the, um, the real person. So instead of a 13-year-old boy in his movie and book, um, he talked about a 12-year-old girl. I don't know if that would be sense of humor, though. Well, that's not, but... Uh, the what was the name of the girl in the movie? Reagan. Reagan, and the real uh, boy's name was Ronald. Ronald Reagan. Although wasn't Ronald Reagan <laughs> president during the eighties? Yes, he was, but he was uh, governor of California before that. So uh, uh, I think there was a little sense of humor there in naming the character in the book and the movie, uh, and uh, thinking about the real name of the boy uh, in the actual story. So anyhow, uh, let's talk about uh, where the exorcism uh, was finished. That particular site, Gary, was just torn down in 1978. This was about 30 years after the exorcism. The, the home? Uh, this was the uh, hospital. Oh, Ten the Alexian Brother Hospital. Yeah, tenants of the hospital reported paranormal activity until the day that that uh, hospital was torn down. That's true. In fact, I do remember that there were um, some sightings of unusual things and smells uh, that were reported by the crew that was actually tearing down the hospital. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, also, Father Bowdern uh, was said to have fasted during the duration of this ordeal, Gary, for over the four months that you mentioned. So, he lost 30 to 40 pounds during this, and they say that he had uh, shrunk to a, 
a remnant of the man that he once was when the exorcisms first began. 30 to 40 pounds lost during the fasting for this series of exorcisms. Wow. And the man who assisted him, Father Halloran, by the way, they were all Jesuit priests, mm-hmm. Society of Jesus. To the day he died, Father Halloran insisted that the possession was real, and this is what he told William Peter Blatty. The case in which I was involved was the real thing. I had no doubt about it then, and I have no doubt about it now. Yes, and I believe Halloran was the one who got punched in the face and yes. had his nose broken. Yes, that's, that's the one. And he participated many years later in a documentary yes. about all of this. And the documentary also said that he witnessed uh, a bottle of holy water sitting on the uh, nightstand that was about five feet away mm-hmm. from the where the action was happening. And he and several of the other priests witnessed the bottle of holy water fly off of the nightstand. He actually had to move his head out of the way, and it smashed into the wall. Yeah, and, and these are some of the little details that I referred to earlier that uh, really cannot be explained by uh, medical uh, situation. Now, that house in... Uh, Near St. Louis, Missouri, actually in the outskirts of St. Louis, Missouri, the uh, relative's house that they first went to, if you recall. Yes. Um, That uh, supposedly had been the source of paranormal activity for many years since uh, 1949. Uh, One neighbor said uh, that the home was eerie, eerily cold and drafty. um, But the latest owner who uh, purchased the place in 2016, he said he hasn't experienced anything. Not a thing. Not a thing out of the ordinary in that house. And uh, and with a little uh, sense of humor, he said, you know, eh, it's probably because it was blessed so many times that it's probably the safest uh, home in all of St. Louis. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um, now, here's a, a, a recent update, too. An exorcism was conducted in the home, in that home, for live TV in October of 2015. Now, the Catholic Archdiocese of St. Louis absolutely condemned the TV show. Sure, I can it. understand why. And, and this is what they said. Exorcism can only be done with the authority of the archbishop. It is not entertainment. Exorcism is serious business and potentially dangerous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, before we go, uh, I'll mention some sources. If, if those of you who are listening want to read more or want some more details that we didn't cover in this, uh, these two episodes, you can find more out about the story from uh, a book called The Real Story Behind the Exorcist. Um, it not only has a story about uh, the young man we were talking about, but it also has some other stories that uh, also uh, played a part, even though that was the main one. Uh, you can also go online if you Google uh, Father Bowden's uh, diary from the exorcism. You can actually find the full uh, diary. Which is what we based our uh, podcast on. Right, and it, it is pretty extensive. It took us about the whole day to uh, read through the whole thing. But the uh, I'll tell you, it gave me goosebumps just going through it. And then the last thing, if you're really interested... Uh, you can check out, it's on Netflix right now. It's um, uh, The Devil and Father Amorth, which was a documentary done by um, William Freakin, the director of The Exorcist, in which he was actually allowed to participate uh, by himself and the priests in 
an actual exorcism. He was the only one allowed in with a camera to film the events of an actual exorcism. Uh, it is chilling to watch. But uh, these are a few things for you to check out. And I tell you what, uh, we'll leave the final decision up to you as to whether or not this was real, if it was psychological, or if it was just a young 13-year-old boy who got himself in a little bit too deep and just kind of continued with um, this idea that he may have been possessed, maybe for a little bit of attention. We'll never know. All right, but as for this episode, we're going to bring it to an end. And just to remind you, I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And this was an incredible story. Thank you.